Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. This is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. On this week's show, it's the 2023 Rap Party live in Los Angeles with our picks for the funniest, most moving, best music moments of the year and more. With special guests Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, Letterboxd Mia Lee Vicino, and Can Best Director winner Tran On Hung. A show four years in the making on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. Last weekend, Josh, we did make it out of the snowy subarctic Midwest to sunny LA for our 2023 rap party. Made it out, but not without some tales to tell. <laughs> made it, you barely made it out, very barely made it back. Yes, yes. For those of you who heard my harrowing tale of driving to St. Louis to avoid a blizzard, then flying to Atlanta, then flying to LA, somehow going home. <laughs> Ended up even worse. And I'm going to leave that for a story at another rap party. Planes, Josh. trains, automobiles, no, mm-hmm. no trains, I don't think. I don't think you had to do no. trains, but otherwise you were reliving that film. Yeah. The rap party is our chance to share our favorite moments from the just departed movie year, our favorite opening scenes, funniest scenes, music and moving moments, and finally our scenes of the year. And to do it in front of a big group of people this year, we partnered with Regal Cinemas, who set us up at their LA Live location in downtown LA. And Josh, I don't know, we always have fun at these things, or we feel like we're getting progressively better at planning and pulling off these live shows, but this might have been the best one yet. Great crowd, enthusiastic crowd. You're going to hear how enthusiastic in the audio. They were so into it, interacting with the clips beautifully. I think some of that had to do with the venue. I mean, we had a giant screen behind us to show some of these scenes that helped. But yeah, we always get a participatory group when film spotting listeners get together. And on top of that, getting to hang out with them before after a lot of L.A. folks saying we've been waiting for this show to happen after we couldn't pull it off in 2020. And it was so good to finally pull it off for them. Getting folks coming from across the country, mm-hmm. getting at least one person from out of the country, from across yes, the pond. across the globe. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so it was it was a great time. It was. And I may be 
a little bit hesitant to try to go back to L.A. for a rap party, but we definitely have to go back to L.A. for another live show. Yes. After let's that. do it. Let's do it in the summer. Yeah. One thing that's not part of this year's rap party that has been in the past, you are not going to hear us announce the Golden Brick Award winner. That's our favorite film from a new or emerging director. We had to make a cut for time hard out two hours this year. And Josh, again, talk about getting better at these things. Two minutes to spare. You're so proud of that. Did you give yourself really a little am. gold star? Because you deserve it, Adam. I do deserve it. We'll announce the winner of the Golden Brick on next week's show as part of our 2024 movie preview. Don't let me forget that part, Josh. Got it. This farewell to 2023 will actually be very short-lived, of course. Oscar nominations are just around the corner. Tuesday the 23rd, we'll share our reactions to those nominations in a bonus show next week. That's exclusive content for our film spotting family members, so many of them we did have a chance to meet in LA. You can find that bonus episode in your feeds if you're a fortunate film spotting family member. More information about joining the film spotting family is at filmspottingfamily.com. In addition to monthly bonus shows and, you know, the knowledge that you're helping to keep us doing what we're doing, Film Spotting Family membership comes with a few other perks, early and ad-free listening, a weekly newsletter put together by our producer, Sam, complete archive access, and more. So again, you can get more information on all of that at filmspottingfamily.com. One note about the show, some of the scenes we chose as our favorites aren't exactly audio-friendly, a little bit unfortunate for a podcast great if you're at a live venue some with very little or no dialogue that's at least one of my choices and some with dialogue we had to bleep apparently all of those somehow were yours josh yeah i i apologize i I don't know what got into me or at least got into the scenes i chose with that in mind let's head out to la no don't don't make me try to go back (laughs) don't worry about your flight i'm afraid to tell you has been canceled Yeah, here's our friend Michael Phillips, who gave us a very warm Hollywood-style intro. What you can't experience in this audio version is Michael, dressed in a tux, true story, and tails, tossing flower petals as he approached the stage. Was it a tux or just a really nice scarf? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Now that you have that visual, here's Michael. Thank you very much uh, for that prop comedy. I appreciate the... um, I'm the Gallagher of film criticism, so... I believe I was asked to tag along to this uh, little West Coast sojourn because the fellows needed someone who's, uh, I don't know, unpretentious yet almost suffocating good taste. Uh, And sophistication could only have come from earning an undergraduate degree at a Midwestern state school. Yeah. Now, it was a little tough to hear that music, but can anyone, did anyone recognize that theme we played a bit of on the piano? Something like Liberace's greatest, you know, dream come true there. That was Max Steiner's music, the theme from the 1937, A Star is Born. And while our stars tonight were born some years ago, tonight here in this wonderland of glamour, Auditorium 11, (laughs) they will be born again. Just a few blocks from here as we speak, the L.A. Film Critics Association Awards Dinner is underway at the Biltmore Hotel. Now there, in that hotel in 1929, the very first Academy Awards presentation took place. Tonight, once again at the Biltmore, the local critics organization is trading bon mots and canapes with a constellation of stars. The creme de la creme. But as I scan the faces here, 
for future AI use, of course. <laughs> I know what I see. I believe my own eyes. And what I see is the creme de la creme de la creme. All right. In fact, there's only one celebration of the movies in downtown LA tonight that actually surpasses the glamour, the prestige, and the expensive valet parking of the Oscars themselves. Well, enough of that. I'm pleased, grateful, proud, a little bit chagrined even, but yes, very nearly humbled to introduce you to the reason we are here tonight. Page two. No, no, not yet, not yet. That was a little early with the music, pal. Really, really got to cut. I mean, I, I'm going, look, I, one more like that, I'm over at Super Mario Brothers in Auditorium 8. All right. And yet I was wrong. Music, please. <laughs> Once upon a time in the mythical land of Iowa, a young man named Adam whiled away the hours in the family barn, fiddling with his wireless. Yes, is a euphemism for everything. As he dreamed of something called a podcast. And meanwhile, in Crestview, Illinois, a lad named Josh was haunted by two thoughts. When will I get my chance to join Adam behind the microphone? And is there a chance in hell that any movie podcast can be around 20 years after that first episode? Yes, there is that chance tonight. Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson, Film Spotting Live. You want to stop them? All right. We got it. <laughs> I don't know uh, how, how we take this show to another level, but we're definitely going to try. And there will be much more Michael Phillips coming later in the show. Uh, we have a couple other special guests as well. We do want to thank all of you for coming to the 2023 Rap Party Live here in L.A. We have to start things off with opening scene, our favorite opening scene of the year. Josh, you have the honors. Thank you. We'll start with a couple of quick honorable mentions. All of these categories were so tough. So I want to get in a few choices that I considered, throw in some listener feedback as well, because uh, we always do love hearing what you guys think and, you know, choosing the ones we agree with, of course. But how about the opening of Priscilla? Those feet, Priscilla's feet in the plush rugs. It's like, oh, this is a Sofia Coppola movie, isn't it? And then we get the insert shots of other trinkets around Graceland that are establishing this lush life. But then there's that shot of the pile of letters from fangirls. And right there in the opening is that juxtaposition that there's a part of Elvis's life she's never going to have access to. All there in the opening of Priscilla. Uh, here's one from a listener, JR, the boy in the heron, Maito witnessing the hospital fire. And yeah, those embers, it, it was almost 3D-like to see that, the embers in that sequence. So great pick there. One more honorable mention here. This one comes from Kyle Logan. The opening of Knock at the Cabin, when Dave Bautista's teacher has a conversation with Kristen Chui's Wen, and we all know something terrible is on the horizon. But Bautista is so soft and kind and caring, really sets the tone for everything that comes after. So thanks for that one, Kyle. That was one that um, I had forgotten about uh, or came out earlier in the year and then saw that suggestion and thought it was a good one. So uh, my winner for opening scene of the year is the first few moments of You Hurt My Feelings. 
Nicole Hall of Center, reteaming with Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but interestingly choosing not to open with her star and her main character, instead something else. For some reason, he doesn't like me to point at him. Yeah, for some reason. Imagine. Imagine this all day. Imagine, hey, imagine it. Maybe you should talk to him about his mother. Did your mom point at you when you were a little kid? Is that why? My mom has been dead for less than a week. <laughs> I'm a f- Yeah. Um, do you hear that? I'm yes. a f- That's yeah. what I am. Me. I'm a bitch. The one who does everything for you all the time. Don. All the Don. time. I, Don. Yeah, Don, you fix it. Fix think- it. Make it better for him. He can't do it by himself. Don, you want to intervene here? I mean, we can do this at home. Um, well, both of you know a more productive way to communicate. So how about, yeah, with a little less contempt and some more honest feelings? Okay, here's a more honest feeling. Um, we've been coming here a long time and nothing changes. You know what, Jonathan? Maybe Milani looks tired. You do. so what smart writing to start this way you know again without uh julia louis dreyfus and uh saving her essentially and how about david cross and amber tamblin here just acrimoniously in sync uh talk about killing a little scene that you get i know they show up later too but they're you know like so many of hall of center's characters they're they're so relatable as real people but it's it's kind of just turned up a little degree in terms of the comedy and the wit. Uh, They're a little bit smarter, a little bit funnier than real people, but you can still relate to them. You can imagine running into them. And Tobias Menzies here is Don. (laughs) There are two great cuts to his facial reactions that are so crucial. The one when his eyes just close over their bickering, it's like his eyes are sighing because he can't he can't actively sigh. That would be unprofessional, (laughs) but his eyes sigh. And then the other cut um, when they call his name, you realize like He's startled because he had completely spaced out. He has been so used to their bickering, he wasn't even listening anymore. So, uh, And then they flip the tables on him, flip the tables on the professional, including an insult that hurts his feelings. And so it's already kind of layering or setting the tone for uh, the theme here with he looks tired. Um, so yeah, a great start. It's its own little mini comedy, mini drama that is connected to the movie's larger concerns. And and we haven't even gotten to Julia Louis-Dreyfus yet. So it's only going to get better from here. You said relatable characters. Hopefully that scene wasn't too relatable for too many yeah. of our couples in the audience, Josh. And I should apologize at this point, too. Um, there is a lot of language in my clips tonight. Some so I don't, I, don't know what's, I don't know what's going on there. But, bleeping um, for the, the radio. <laughs> there version. you go. Yes. Sam, Sam's <laughs> on it. So for me, if you run her up, options here. And this is really just to make Michael Phillips mad. Even after that amazing intro, I'm going with the beginning of the killer, David Fincher's the killer that attempted assassination, we'll, we'll call it. And then, you know what, even though you had stronger feelings for the boy and the heron than I did, that opening scene is incredible. Mahito's mother, as you talked about in the, the burning hospital, him running through the streets of Tokyo and yeah, the, the use of the blurred imagery and the shadows there in that animation uh, to really capture that chaos and make you feel like you were you were in it is is striking. And then I have another one that you know I was going to wax poetically about, but you're you're going to mention it in another category. In mm. fact, I think it's going to be your your winner in another category. So I'll save I'll save any comments until later. Your scene from "You Hurt My Feelings" was great, Josh. But unless I missed her, I, I didn't see Nicole Hollips in her. Anywhere. Is she here? I don't believe she's okay. here. Well, that's too bad because the director 
of my favorite opening scene is here with us tonight. His films have played at Cannes going back to 1993, starting with his debut feature, The Scent of Green Papaya, which was also an Oscar nominee for Best Foreign Language Film. He won the Best Director Prize at Cannes last May for his latest one of my top 10 films of the year, which is The Taste of Things, about the culinary collaboration and romance between a gourmet, Benoit Magimel's Dodin, and his chef, Juliette Binoche's Eugenie in 1885 France. Even though it is a, it's a 2023 film and it did play here in LA, maybe still is in theaters, this will be the only case tonight where for most people listening, it will be one to look forward to as opposed to, to looking back on. It's going to expand and hit more screens, I think February 9th. So put it in your calendars if you haven't seen it. Please welcome the director of The Taste of Things, Tran An Hung. Thank you. We thought we'd go handheld, make it a little casual. Thanks so much. Thank you. This worked Thank out you wonderfully. Thank you for inviting I, me. It's so funny here. Yeah. I, I <laughs> promised this was my scene before I found out you were going to be in L.A. It just, yes. it just worked out so, so well for us. So what, what I want to do is I want to watch this scene together, and then okay. we'll talk about it a little bit. I'm calling this scene... I wonder if you have a name for this opening sequence. I'm calling it Preparing the Omelet, and I think I've started it about 20 years 20 or 30 seconds into the film. Let's watch. Juliet? Eugenie, c'est délicieux. So we're actually all going to leave now and go eat. That's, that's really what I want to do after seeing that again. So, Hung, you do something really brilliant here that other great filmmakers have done, which is you point the camera at Juliette Binoche. <laughs> yes. And it was a really, really good choice. But, you know, two minutes there, very little dialogue, really elegantly establishing this world, these characters, their relationships to each other. We get the full sense of that, the links and the care taken in the preparation of food. Beyond pointing the camera at, at Juliet, uh, I'd love to just hear about how you approached the opening of, the, of your film. Uh, it was um, um, uh, the idea of uh, showing uh, things co coming from the earth first, you know, so we, we start with the, uh, with the garden uh, to see where come all these food. And then uh, we, we had this very simple to start with, you know, the, the omelette. And then because uh, just after this, uh, a few seconds later, it will be a very long, long scene of cooking for something like 40 minutes of it. And uh, so, yes, I started slowly. Yeah, but <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that because I almost struggled to pick this as an opening scene because I feel like watching the film, it felt like the first 40 minutes was one long scene you're you're preparing and, and the eating of the omelet that does transition to this grand meal that then she has to prepare for dodan and his friends and it's just course after course so was that by design in terms of trying to make it feel kind of as as fluid as possible and and just make it seem as if we were we were in this world in the kitchen with these characters for um really enough time to to feel comfortable Oh yes, it's it uh, because it's a movie about the pleasure of love and food, and also uh, it's a, a movie about about harmony, 
um, because it's so rare to 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 feel harmony in in, in cinema, and um, because of this love story between Eugenie and Dodin, uh, they 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 live together for more than twenty years and they work together for more than twenty years. So there was a, a sense of harmony in in the the way they they are working together. So it was important for me to bring this harmony to to the audience, and so this uh, long scene in 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 the beginning. Uh, of the cooking uh, was uh, supposed to to be like a ballet, and uh, for me with 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 the the crew, I, I told them that it's uh, it's my car chase scene, to, <laughs> so, so that they 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 know the the, the importance of it. Yeah, and and that great touch. I wonder if it was in the script or how you worked it out with your with your actor in this case, but just having him lean forward and take that deep deep smell in immediately we as viewers we we feel it too right like we 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 can smell that omelet from our seats in the theater oh yes yes it, it was important because uh, that's why when i choose the, the the location it was very important because you in the in the movie you will see it um that all the circulation between the the uh, his room to the kitchen and uh, from the kitchen to her room from her room to his room all these need to be uninterrupted so that I can film it in, in one shot, you know? And I did it a lot to show the, this kind of harmony and also the life that is in there. In this place, we have the feeling that the, the, the characters really live in this place and it's not only a set. Last question for you, you brought up the camera work. I love how when we start in the garden, it feels a little more formal, static, wonderful landscape shots. But then when we get into the kitchen, it, it goes looser, it goes handheld, we're, we're following uh, Binoche, we're following her hands, which is really important. She prepares the food. Can you just talk about the, the, the visual strategy there? Oh yes, it's, um, um, it's um, uh, because my background, what I really like when I was young uh, as a filmmaker, uh, as a young boy, is Westerns and musicals. And all these, these two genres are really very strong about the body about the, also the, the flesh, because in a Western, when you see uh, two guys beating up each other, falling in the mud and uh, standing up with blood and mud and, and or everything wet, and, and then the opposite uh, of it is uh, musicals. You know, when a, a, a boy meets a girl and then uh, the, uh, the next second, his left foot would do something, his right foot would do something, and then he start dancing with the music, all this. And, and this was my background. And so what I like in, in movies is the body and how, how they move. So all these, uh, uh, I like to see um, uh, um, um, uh, the characters moving around the, 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 the set and also all these uh, very complex camera movement that follow them. Sometimes it's a very close up and sometimes it's a, a wide shot, you know, in the same shot. So all this, it's uh, something that is, has a, a musical quality that I really like. This is really an honor for us to have you here tonight. Congrats on making such a beautiful film. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tran Hung, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, if, if you haven't seen it again, and, and you, know, you weren't locked into seeing it before, uh, I, I assume everyone's going to rush out now. Really just one of, my, one of my favorites, as I said. So that was, that was a treat. Let's, the note about harmony, though, yeah. it was really made a sense for me. And, and also the bodily uh, element, too. I, I'm glad Hung brought that up because I was thinking, watching this movie, of, you know, this is a very erotic movie. Uh, and it's similar to the world of Opu. 
the young married couple in that film and how they're cooking together. And um, that's part of their sensual relationship as well. And also in the mood for love came to mind, incorporating, you know, eroticness and, and food as well. And then just watching this now, the harmony of the camera movement, it's not just that it's floating to me, but it's, it's doing something even more precise. It's peering into these pots. Um, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's not that you're watching, like you really want to get in there and see what's in there. And I love that. And it made me realize watching this again, just now, that's kind of how my dog watches us cook. (laughs) Like so invested in every, maybe, (laughs) maybe. Um, and that, that's, that's what I feel watching, watching much of this movie. All right. Now let's get to our next category. It is the funniest moment of the year. This is a tricky category. We should probably just drop this one. We'll see how it goes. I say we should drop it only because, I mean, people can disagree with us about any of our picks, but this is one where like, we'll know whether or not it's funny because they'll laugh or not. It's true. Right. Yes. And we'll look, we'll look foolish potentially, <laughs> but I, I think we're, I think we're okay here. I think we're okay. And we have another guest for this category. Currently hosting reviews on Letterboxd as Gal Pacino, but the real fans, they'll always know her as Brat Pitt. She's the West Coast editor of the Letterboxd Journal and has been holding the Letterboxd mic talking with the likes of, you know, just Greta Gerwig, Martin Scorsese, nobody big. She was also recently seen uh, serenaded. I, I got to hear more about this by the holdovers, Dominic Sessa. It's Mia Lee Vicino. All right, Mia. Quickly, just two disclaimers about about Mia's choices here. We're going to get a runner up, and and then her her choice for funniest moment. Um, actually, I don't even really need to say. It. You're going to see a clip that's the only one that's not you know widescreen in all its glory. It's like it's a TikTok version because that's all I could find. But it kind of makes what? sense for the scene, you know, because it's a it's a it's a viral moment. And actually, your winner is one that's a real viral moment. I probably could have found a a TikTok for that as well. So we're actually going to watch the clip from your runner up. But I want you yes. to set that up and and then get into your your choice. Okay. Yes, I would. I would like the caveat that this is my this is my runner up. Um, I was I was trepidatious about picking this one. May I be vulnerable with everybody? <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. I was trepidatious because I was a little bit fearful of being perceived as basic for this pick. But I have to live my truth. I do. I do. Should I should I say it now or do I reveal it? Go for it. Reveal okay, it. Okay. I'm gonna reveal it. Everything that Ryan Gosling did in Barbie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It had me, oh my God, he had me twirling my hair and giggling, even though I have a pixie cut. I was figuring out how to twirl my hair. Um, he is just so funny and I want to look at him right now. So let's, let's just roll the clip and I'll talk more after. I was thinking, yes. I'm ready to be your long-term distance, low commitment, casual girlfriend, if you'll still have me. Do you just hold on for one second? Oh, okay. Sublime! I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about that. Oh. Please? Okay. Okay. See, look at that. Everybody laughs. It's certified. It worked. Funny. Yep. <laughs> okay, okay. So, um,. Yes, I just, I mean, it's simply funny. We all laughed. Like, that's, that's it. So I'm going to talk about my, um, my, 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 my number one pick now. Wait, I have one more thing to say. I have one more thing to say about Ryan Gosling, Do actually. It. Okay. 
I think <laughs> that it is an ultimate act of male allyship to humiliate yourself for the entertainment of millions of women. <laughs> um, so Ryan Gosling is following in the lineage of, you know, the dads from Mamma Mia. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of him. So thank you, Ryan, for that. You win second place. Yes. Thank you, yes. Ryan. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, so my number one pick is actually from a film that, unlike the Golden Globes, I do not necessarily consider a comedy. It is from May, December. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. More I'm validation. Yes. There you go. So I'm sure you probably already know uh, the scene that I am about to reference. Um, it is the classic hot dog scene. I wish, <laughs> oh, I wish we could play it for you. Um, but I can, I can do a little impression. Okay, so she, she goes, she walks over to the fridge. Julianne Moore, by the way, the beautiful, amazing Julianne Moore. She walks to the fridge. She opens it up. There's like a, a slow zoom in on her face. There's a musical sting. And then she goes... I don't think we have enough hot dogs. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and then it cuts to so many Cut hot dogs hot on dogs. the grill. Yeah. It cuts to a bunch of hot dogs. Oh my God. Sammy Birch's script is incredible. It is her debut feature, if you can believe that. It is so sharp and funny. I can't wait to see what she does next, which is Coyote versus Acme. Oh. Did you did you all know that? That <laughs> no. she wrote the script for Coyote versus Acme? Certifiably funny. Okay, those are my picks. Thank, Thank you. Thank yeah. you so well, much. You can hang out and you can <laughs> you can mock our choices or certify oh, them yeah. funny. So hang out. Yes. Hang well, out. I do love bit. when okay. um, I do love uh, men humiliating themselves. Yeah, exactly. It's so, gonna happen a lot tonight. <laughs> yes, yes. As you've already seen, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, love the picks. Thank you. And yeah, the the Barbie one in particular. Well, thank you for the massacre theater. And <laughs> um, I should say I played Adam a little uh, Massacre Theater, a game at our family's New Year's Eve party. I prepared one. You'll get a royalty check. Don't worry. Um, and picked five scenes. And that was the scene I picked from Barbie because it was like multi-generational. We had teenagers there and, and knew they would want to do that. My niece, she nailed the sublime line reading. So just nailed it. So yeah, it works in that context too. Your runner-up or runners-up, Josh, what do you have for us? All right. Well, definitely, yeah, Ryan Gosling got some consideration for sure. Um, how about, well, I thought for much of this year, I had my pick sewn up. I thought for sure this is it. Nothing is going to be funnier than Chris Pine's Edgin trying to get crucial information from the revived corpses of soldiers on a battlefield in Dungeons & Dragons. Yes. I mean, if you haven't seen it, I can't really explain it to you. Basically, he, he can only get five questions and then they'll expire forever. He keeps screwing it up. It's kind of like a, it's like a macabre version of who's on first, basically. <laughs> it's wonderful. So I thought I'm set. Rap party category done. Got a whole half a year yet. I can start thinking about the <laughs> other ones. Then August rolled around and I saw Bottoms. Woo! Now, so much of this movie made me laugh. Nothing more, however, than Ayo Adebris Josie lamenting to Rachel Sunnitz PJ that she will never find a girlfriend and instead is going to end up with a gay classmate who will go on to become a closeted pastor. <laughs> I don't want to say it, but we're... You know what? I'm good, because it's not going to happen for me. If it's not happening here, then it's definitely not happening at Emerson, okay? I'm done trying to sew my damn no. oats. I'm packing up my vagina, and I'm... Match you. That's the only hope for me. No! It's man the two, man. And because he's gay and fearless, he's probably gonna f 
without protection. Then I'm gonna get pregnant. We're gonna have to join a church. He'll be the gay pastor. My whole life's and yeah, sure, his sermons are good, but everybody knows he's fruity. Everybody knows he's fruity. By the way, our son Hezekiah hates us because he knows we're both positive. But we try to make it work for him, but he's not happy. And yeah, guess what? The deacon's the evangelist, man. He's the evangelist. I don't want to live like that. Will you come and visit us on Sunday? Please, will you come and visit us on Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to start with the performance from Adabri here. I mean, the way it builds or spirals, we should say, into complete hysteria. Um, you know, this, the script is by Sennett and director Emma Seligman, but I, I do wonder how much of this might have been improvised by Adabri. I mean, their kid is named Hezekiah. Where, where that, was, just, that was it for me. So that perfect. was where I was, I was all in so on perfect. that scene. Uh, and I love to think it was spur of the moment. May um, I? May I be a know-it-all and say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was, thank you. I was hoping I'd probably find interviewed out them. Yes, and I did insight. interview them. Of yes, course. But yeah, they, tell not me. Not to brag, um, it was improvised. Yes, the script itself, it just had like one line for her, and then she just what? went off. She's a genius. Well, She's this a is star. clear. She came up with Hezekiah. Yeah, yeah. She can just wow. do that. So good. It's yeah. so good. Thank you. I was hoping course, I'd find out course. tonight. Um, but yeah, uh, also credit Senate in this scene for the straight face she's supplying this, through this whole thing. Um, and it gets like increasingly bewildered. And I think there's that little, you know, the deacon and the evangelist bit. She just kind of does a little head shake. Like, where are, where are we going? And even the filmmaking, right? There's a choice to cut this scene in two parts. And I think that is so crucial because just they're walking and then we cut and we think, okay, this has been crazy. This rant is over. It's got to be done. That's what the edit suggests, right? Yeah. No, cut to inside the car and she is still going. And and the way it ends, will you come and visit us on Sundays? I think we should all use that as code for when we're really going through it, but we can't say it. You just look at someone and say, will you please visit me on Sunday? And they'll know what you're talking about. Okay. That, that's going to be our code from now yeah. on, Josh. All right. We'll do it. We'll do it. Woo! <laughs> so... Mia did the the heavy lifting for me. My runner-up was definitely going to be basically everything Gosling does in Barbie. You have Sublime, but you've got Mojo, Dojo, Casa House. The push sequence, of course, cracks me up. But really, for me, the key one is is when he discovers the patriarchy. And that that line, can I talk to a doctor? You are talking to a doctor. And then, of course, he he wants a clicky pen. And here I am with my pen. It makes me, I, I guess, feel masculine up here. So uh, let's, let's get to my choice then here. It's, um, it's from Theater Camp. Yeah! And I already had like five options for this, and then I rewatched it on the plane out here and added like 15 more. Sam and I just have a Slack channel now that's just us trading lines from Theater Camp, okay? So I'll give you a few quick ones, but like the line that still always kills me is when they're announcing this season's shows and they say, the Crucible Junior in the lobby. Something, something about that just always gets me. Tech week when Glenn, Noah Galvin just throws himself down the, down the hill instead of running. One I discovered or rediscovered on the plane, no more, no more piercings. We have a narc. Cassie, you're the narc. <laughs> it's totally fine. And then of course the, uh, you're an acting teacher bit that, uh, the, one of the, one of the performers says to Ben Platt, and he says, okay, that's, that's wildly opinionated. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm a performer who works full-time as an acting teacher. 
and yet, as great as all those are, none of them live up to the scene that, that truly does make me laugh the most every single time I see it. And this is when they're, they're rehearsing Joan Still, the big play, the original production that they're putting on, and one of their leads seems to be using some performance enhancers. Tear, stick. It's just chapstick, I swear. Give it to me. Oh my God. Mackenzie, I'm not mad, I'm just furious. Your tears should come from within, from the story, from the words on the page, not from some emotional grenade that you smuggled in. What's, what's a tear stick? material. It's a mentholated eyeliner that helps you cry. Joan is screaming and furious at you because tear sticks are doping for actors. Do you want to be the Lance Armstrong of theater? No. Get off the stick. One day it's tear stick. The next, you're calling for line. And pretty soon, your understudy's on eight times a week in Weehawken, for God knows where, okay? It's a slip, pre-slip, pre-slope. David, I'm so sorry. Oh, uh, it, it's really, it's fine. Tell him you're sorry. I'm sorry, Devin. It, it's really fine. I choose to forgive. But we don't forget. Towards the end, the long game forgive. But without ever forgetting. <laughs> So when, when Michael comes up here in a little bit, he's going to tell us tales about performing theater in Weehawken. He's the only one here who has that experience. But two-minute scene, like, what, 17 jokes? I don't know, crammed into there. Obviously, the, the she's using line. But the way, the way Platt and Gordon each uniquely, awkwardly <laughs> jump onto the stage is gold. Do you want to be the Lance Armstrong of theater? <laughs> and, and get off the stick and the snot, just full-blown... <laughs> Coming down Molly's face. You know it's, what's great about the snot incredible. is the jump cut they use. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like a meta joke itself because they're faking it. <laughs> they're faking it to Good get call. an emotional physical uh-huh. reaction, and that's what the whole scene's about. Even though you know she could deliver that right in one take, they could have just left it on her. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And and the emphasis by Platt on the "we'll we'll never forget" is is just it's it's sublime. That's what I'm going to say. It's sublime, and it seems like we got. We got the approval we needed here with our choices. Everybody feel good about it? Everybody laughed. Yeah. That's all we needed. We are going to thank Mia, who you can follow on Letterboxd at Gal Pacino. Or under her real name on Twitter and Instagram. Oh, yeah. My real name. I forgot about that. I'm Mia Pacino. (laughs) Anything else you want to plug before you go? Oh, I would love to plug my Saw X socks. I'm in Saw X socks. You can't see. That's really all I have. Um, 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 That's fascinating. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll explain why later. Yeah, no. <laughs> Can I point it out that the director of Saw X is here? The writer of Saw X is here. Stop. I always gave him too much credit. Stop. He'll, no, he'll sign your Josh socks. Josh I love you. Thank you for your service. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm starstruck. Thank you. Um, <laughs> That's, that, was, that was not planned. How about that? Oh God, Improvised. Really... Thank you, Mia. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Mia. Okay. We, we had Michael. Then we had, we had Hung. And then we had Mia and all that energy and insight. And now it's just the two of us up here. And I don't... I don't I don't know how we're going to. And we're going to make people. Energy. We're going to make people cry. It gets worse. Well, that's why we didn't bring a guest up. We're not comfortable, you know, crying directly in front of them. It is time. We go from funniest moment. It's a whole gamut of emotions here on Film Spotting. We're going to go to the most moving moment. 
Josh. So two honorable mentions, and there are actually two lines of dialogue. So I'll just say them and we'll move on. <laughs> Wes Anderson's The Swan, My Darling Boy, What Happened to You? Aaron Bergstrom, listener, highlighted this one. Again, another pick from The Boy and the Heron. I gave myself the scar. And I'm realizing that both of those are uh, boys around the same age who are suffering emotional and physical violence. So I don't know what that's about. I'll have to work with my therapist on that. Um, I have an appointment for my Hugh Grant Oopalopa issues. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you got a lot we'll, on the docket. We'll try to, it might have to be a double, I double have, session. I hope you have someone who's less tired. <laughs> yes. My pick, though, is coming from maybe a bit of an unlikely film. It's Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Um, you know, most most moving moment, maybe not the most likely category um, for this. It's an animated comic book movie. Um, but I think that just goes to show the depth of this film, the richness of this movie. I mean, it's painting on a familiar canvas, but in just wildly inventive and very thoughtful ways. Uh, so the moment itself that I picked from it is this quiet conversation that Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy have. This is after they've reunited. They've been swinging their way across the skyscrapers of New York City, and then they sit down to talk. What? You're the only friend I've ever really made after Peter died. Other than Hobie, right? That's different. Yeah? How's that? I don't know. You and me, it's... We're the same. In the important ways, you know? In every other universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man. And in every other universe, it doesn't end well. Well, it's the first time for everything, right? So, yeah, I really wanted to step aside and, and actually watch that one because for me, it's it's all about the visuals. Um, they're doing so much of the work here. We have the two of them, you know, they're hanging upside down, right? Um, I love the detail of, of Gwen's ponytail seemingly defying gravity. Such a great touch. Um, but then inverting the image. So the skyline is what looks upside down. And what an ingenious way for depicting, you know, two teens who are their world's been upended in somewhat thrilling ways, but also really terrifying ways for both of them too. Um, and this is what they're talking about here. So the oomph for me, the moving part comes um, with this background, them telling each other, and maybe it's more hopefully romantic for Miles than Gwen, just some great little character gestures there, um, but that they're going to be there for each other uh, no matter what comes. Um, so I think, you know, I think early on, Adam, we did, we had like a shot of the year category mm -hmm. at some point, right? So this would this would possibly be my shot of the year choice, but I'm going to, I'm going to go with it for most moving moment of 2023. So great stuff. Round of applause for a great choice from Josh. Thank you. So you're going to love this. My, my new year's resolution was to try to cut down on my honorable mentions. <laughs> I'm usually the guy up here who feels like I have to get through seven titles before I get to my one. This one's so good. It's, I'm just going to say it's so moving. It's so good. That, that I don't need any runners up. We're, we're gonna get really weepy, okay? My moving moment comes from my number one film of the year, All of Us Strangers. Andrew Haig, starring Andrew Scott, 
Paul Meskel, who, if they're on the screen behind me, which I believe they are, you're not paying attention to me. I, I, I know that. And in this scene, it's, it's Scott as Adam and Jamie Bell as his father. If, if you haven't seen the film yet, Adam is a screenwriter. He's working on an autobiographical project. And when he gets on a train, it sort of seems like he magically gets to go back to his childhood home. He's able to interact with his parents who are existing in their house just like they were 30 years ago before they died in an accident. Claire Foy plays his mother. In this scene, it's father and son. They're talking about how uh, he never had the opportunity, Adam, to come out to his parents. And some crucial context here is just before this moment, the dad, Jamie Bell, has admitted that he used to hear his son in his room sometimes come home from school and, and he was upset because of how he was treated by his classmates and he'd never go in to hug him. And, and then they joke that, you know, he was never really that kind of dad, but maybe Adam was never really that kind of kid either who, who really would have uh, been in a position uh, to feel comfortable with that. Both actors are extraordinary, but really pay attention to how Bell processes being reminded about how he would admonish his son. There's a first wave and then there's, there's a real second wave. And pay, pay close attention as well to the final shot. Let's roll it. You told me not to cross my legs like a woman over and over and over again. Did I? Yeah, I still, still think about it every time I cross my legs. I have good memories, too. Yeah, I hope so. Okay. I hope so. I hope you did. <laughs> Remember you used to love decorating the tree? <laughs> <laughs> you were crazy for us every year. Mm. And, and you'd always let me um, put the fairy <laughs> on top of the tree. <laughs> Sorry, I never came in your room when you were crying. Oh, really? It's okay. That's not okay, though, really, is it? It's not. Dad, Dad, I get it. It was, it was so long. It was so long ago. Stop. Can I hug you now? Yeah, please. can clap because they're they're too busy crying probably after after watching that but when when he he turns his head and you see bell just sort of grind his teeth that that physical part and then the gesture later his hand on his face just just slays me and then and then we do get that more emotional breakdown and then scott's breakdown on top of it but then of course that final shot too the mirror reflecting back adam as a young boy finally getting that hug and, and separate from the the construct of the film what's real what's fantasy partly what's so moving about this scene for me is that it is a fantasy whether your your parents are dead or alive um whether you're queer or straight just think about how many people yearn for this type of closure 
and reconciliation. One more hug, or in this case, just just getting you know a hug, perhaps with a parent who you know has passed. Getting to be open finally, open and honest about who you are, and getting acceptance too in that moment. Um, a lot of scenes in this in this film. Obviously, I, I love it as much as I do. Um, we're in contention for this category, Josh, but this is the one that I kept coming back to, especially um, because of, of Bell's performance. I, I do want to note, so a quick bit of thanks to a listener um, who happens to uh, work in publicity for Fox Searchlight, Ryan Aguirre, who's here. Ryan, where are you at? Ryan, right up there. Ryan, pulled that scene for us. Thank you very much, Ryan. And uh, yeah, round of applause for Ryan. And if you, if you follow all of us strangers on Twitter, it's at AOU Strangers. I, just about 24 hours ago, this scene popped up, and, and it was a great um, script-to-life uh, comparison where you see the words on the page, and then you see what, what Bell and Scott are doing with those words. And, and I wondered, is, is that a coincidence? And it turns out, no, it's not a coincidence. Ryan thought, I pulled this scene. It's remarkable. Let's put it out there on social media, and let's do, do the comparison. So um, I, I urge you to um, seek that out, again, at AOU Strangers, and you can see a little bit about uh, what the what the scene was like on the page and how those incredible actors transformed it. Yeah. I think this is, this is the scene to go with from this film. As you said, there's so many to pick from Claire Foy has somewhat similar moments, you know, as the mother um, conversations. I like that they have conversations in the film separate and together with the parents, you know, they can, their individual dynamics can come to the fore. You referenced, you know, him talking about not coming into his room earlier. Doesn't the father say something about, um, trying to explain that earlier in the conversation. Like I, I knew I was one of the boys who would have been. Yeah. That's was the real tough mm-hmm. one for me, that line. Um, so this is a, an incredibly rare scene in what's happening here because um, it's a full fledged experience of reconciliation. And that that's very rare in film. Sometimes you'll get a movie that manages that from beginning to end. Um, but this packs it all into one sequence because right there you have, you know, you have the confession coming and they deal with it. Like they're dealing with it. That's what the, I would have been one of those boys is all about. And then you get genuine forgiveness, right? The, uh, you believe that the son is wanting to offer this sort of forgiveness and then they move all the way, you know, to real reconciliation, which is the rarest of things. Um, I love that we get to watch these scenes for this live show. It makes me wish we could do like do this when we record mm-hmm. every time. It's like when we're going to talk about something, let's watch it first. Because I noticed this time, even though I've seen this multiple times now, um, how the son leans into him when they hug at the height that a child would and in the way a child would, right? They're both adult men and you know, the most kind of basic way you would just kind of be at the same level, but he kind of crumples into him and the way it's shot too, it makes him look even before we get the, mm-hmm. the image of the young boy, he's already transforming into that. So yeah. it's everything in the scene is exquisite. And to your point about it being real reconciliation and having that closure, Adam changes after this moment, we see it in him. we recognize it in him immediately as he's on the train going home and then the, the yeah that's right events yeah. and the story kind of unfold from there but you can tell this has had that that impact yeah. on him yeah. to to derail us completely <laughs> we're gonna bring back to the stage you know him you love him all the way from Weehawk and michael phillips <laughs> okay so you go from formal wear to casual wear just like that costume change 
Gotta be comfortable, baby. <laughs> so it is time for music moment. And you've got a really good choice here. And, and maybe you have some others that you want to highlight. Michael, I mean, take yeah, it away. I, I, I'm going to take two of your uh, cast off uh, runners okay. up and uh, grab, grab just two quick ones. Um, I guess my, one of them that really, uh, that's my second runner up would be uh, the striking bomb test the trinity test in oppenheimer and i i think it's a striking musical moment because the music finally shuts up in that score uh i like that movie a lot a lot and some of it i think is just stunning and um i continually fight uh, uh my instincts fight a little bit with nolan's on how much music is too much which is never too much for him um <laughs> Uh, I do think, and the, the example I always point to with that is going back to, you know, yes, the olden times. Uh, you look at somebody not that far back, Jerry Goldsmith, one of my favorites. Uh, you know, he would compose uh, for a film like Patton, not a film I love, but a score I love. It's a three-hour film. There's somewhere between 33 and 38 minutes of music in that film. And you, you notice it. What I noticed in Opp- in Oppenheimer, I saw that you know three times in different formats and all that. That that it's the one element where I just thought, nah. <laughs> that's one. Uh, the other one, uh, I really I struggled a bit with uh, Wes Anderson's film Asteroid City. I really loved those four uh, Roald Dahl adaptations on Netflix. I mean, I love those, and it's my favorite stuff of his since Grand Budapest. I liked a lot of Asteroid City, but I really, really was just happy and relieved to hear Dear Alien sung by Dwight. <laughs> and uh, I love it. And, uh, and I also love it that this, the song has a lyric saying, let's, let's do the Spaceman. So I love it that it's trying to introduce a new international dance craze, the Spaceman. <laughs> but my musical moment is from Poor Things, which I uh, love. Really love uh, Bella Baxter and Duncan Wedderburn. Uh, you know, Frank, this is a Frankenstein's monster learning about the world uh, in Yorgos Lanthimos's film, uh, making new discoveries, sexual and otherwise, as she goes. And here in this scene, for the first time, she's discovering the joys of dancing, the sort of herky, jerky Franken dance. Let's see it. <laughs> Like me, had a creature of freedom in the moment. What did you do in that for? A man over there repeated blinks at me. I blinked back for polite, I think. <laughs> I, I love that scene for a lot of reasons. I love it because it reminds me of my own high school years. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, trying to let loose on a dance floor uh, after a, a young lifetime of growing up in a repression American household. Uh, um, and it's also a reminder for me that there's so much vitality in watching two first-rate actors who are real character actors in the best sense, in the truest sense. And they're, and they're here, we, <laughs> they're boldly going where no dance sequence on film 
has ever gone before. I, I just, lo- I, I really love it. And I would have picked it if I didn't like it because Mark Ruffalo was born in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as was I. So I got to invoke the, the Kenosha principle. Kenosha, Weehawken. <laughs> it's all the same, right? I love it. I love the way it starts out where you're sure that he's just trying to save face a little bit and dance with her to not be so embarrassed. But then they kind of end up a little bit in sync with each other, actually. We get this wonderful, semi, you know, anachronistic Lanthimos bit that yep. we've, we've become familiar with from his films. Yeah, I, I think I think I love it that Bella is just as interested and a little bit um, aroused by the sight of the brawl afterwards, you know? And, like, <laughs> that's also back from high school when I think of it, like, this attempt at dancing, and then there's somebody brawling in the corner. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Michael went to high school in West Side Story. So... <laughs> Josh, you are up. And this is, I'll just say, this is the one that, that it's an opening scene and it's one I strongly considered, but it, it works really well here. But yeah, you have, you have some business first. I have a lot of business. Okay. I'm, t- I'm picking up a lot of your honorable mentions here and I, Great. He- I hear we're, we've got plenty of time. So let me, let me make, <laughs> okay. We've switched bodies for 2024. <laughs> uh, I'll go through these quickly, but how about Mike seducing Max at the start of Magic Mike's Last Dance? If you don't want to see Channing Tatum, carry Salma Hayek around, I don't know what to do for you. That that scene is incredible. Pretty good. Um, All downhill from there. But. Also, uh, good movie, good movie. Uh, Daniel Brooks, Danielle Brooks leading uh, Hell No in the color purple. Very good number in that movie. Okay, Aki Kurosmaki's Fallen Leaves. Get ready for some wild pronunciation here, okay? <laughs> there is a moment near the end where Finnish pop duo Mouse Tatat performs Sintinit Surin Ya Poeto Pedemixen. Just flows off the Finnish tongue, right? All right. Uh, I love that performance in that, in that movie. Um, I'm sure I butchered that. Anyway, my pick. See, that was, that's how you can do it, Adam. You can get through. You can I'll try. I'll try it. I'll try it next. Like, really okay. quick ones there. Okay, right. my pick. It comes from, it is the opening scene of Anatomy of a Fall. So Justine Triette's, you know, this mystery-ish murder mystery. Uh, and in this scene, for those who may not have seen it, a little bit of context, but the main character is uh, a writer played by Sandra Huller, who's being interviewed in her home by a grad student played by Camille Rutherford. And then there is this unseen presence uh, that's insinuating an unseen person that's insinuating themselves in the conversation. And that is the novelist's husband who's blaring a cover of 50 cents pimp by uh, Bacow rhythm and steel band. It's uh, somewhere working upstairs. My husband. So what interests you? What makes you so mad? You want to explore it. Forget about your thesis, your studies. Everything. I don't want to be a writer. Right, just talk like we're talking now. You don't want to go on with my question. Of course, I want to go on <laughs> Of course, but we could chat too. Maybe we ask one question each, so nobody's frustrated. Make a normal conversation. <laughs> Are you really interested in what? And what interests you? Come on, sure. I never see anybody. I work here all day long. You come to see me, of course, you interest me. Okay. Um... I run. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite things to do. It makes me feel high like I'm on drugs. <laughs> what do you know about drugs then? Oh, a lot. That's the next question. <laughs> Big subject. <laughs> Maybe you don't write everything down. No, no, okay. surely not. I told you. 
So there is there is a lot going on in this scene, a lot of dynamics between the two of them alone. This is, you know, a professional interview, also a flirtation. And so they're juggling all that. And then you have, as I said, this the music is this third character uh, that's intruding. And you can see it in how they both react. Right. And and they're kind of like they don't want to acknowledge it, but they kind of have to at some point, especially when it starts over again. Um, and Triette returns, you know, um, to this music later as well. So it becomes this motif an incredibly jarring motif because we've experienced it this way the first time every time we hear it and what a choice what a brilliant choice because it has this you know it's um kind of on the surface a pleasant you know listen but there is something insinuating about this cover also um so a perfect pick um sophisticated use of existing music um to do emotional work here thematic work um, and it just makes it, yeah, it could have, could have been an opening scene pick too. Yeah. I love how you're right. The, the music itself isn't oppressive and yet everything about how it's employed there feels that way. And adding to that is that, that camera work, we talked about it a little bit when we reviewed the film, but how uncomfortably close those, those extreme <laughs> close-ups, right? Just adding, we're, we're as uncomfortable as the interviewer listening to the music and knowing the dynamic. And then on top of it, we're just too close to them, right? <laughs> and especially seeing it on a on a big screen. So great choice. All right, I'm going to see if I can pull this off quickly here like Josh did. I'm going to mention two that we've already heard about these films, The Power of Love, going back to all of us strangers, Theater Camp again, Camp Isn't Home, the finale of Theater Camp. Uh, but I'll mention one that hasn't been said yet, which is Killers of the Flower Moon. Tough one here, but I'm going to go with Osage Oil Boom. The combination of Robbie Robertson's incredible score. Michael, please tell me you're down with Oh, no. Fantastic score. Yeah. Really, I mean, I wish uh, Nolan could watch that. <laughs> <laughs> the Again. combination of that music, the uh, Thelma Shoemaker's editing, Rodrigo Prieto's cinematography, that slow motion reverie as the oil erupts. You, you know, you, you just know, obviously, you know, going to the theater, you know, the filmmaker is, you're in good hands, but you really know it there. My choice, though, for music moment is from Sean Durkin's The Iron Claw, the tragic true story of the Von Erich wrestling family. Turns out maybe this choice was predictable. Let's throw up a tweet from our friend Isaac Feldberg. (laughs) So literally me that right so, you know, not only am I, am I a dad, but I, I quite like Rush. So that, that helps. It's not that it's Tom Sawyer, though, that makes this scene, this montage I'm going to show so great. It helps, but it's how the song is used. It's how it supports the larger themes of the movie, masculinity and this incredible brotherhood. I'm going to talk more about both of those things after we watch it. But I will also say to, to look closely at, at how this scene really is constructed, how the editor, Matthew Hannum, fits the pieces of it together. There's a, there's a real design to it.
don't know. That's one we needed to crank, really crank to get the full effect of that. But uh, the the matching action there, right? Sometimes it's more explicit, like when we get the the cash, uh, counting the money from the wrestling match after it, and then two wrestlers in a room exchanging cash. Sometimes it's it's more subtle. It's it's just the arm movements, but there there is a connection between literally every cut in that scene. It's a, a shot in the ring when uh, you know someone's punching downwards or the flip. I don't know the moves. I'm sorry. I'll have to consult a wrestling <laughs> expert. But that move when he flips him over, and then we cut to Jeremy Allen White on his head. Right, like there's there's that that matching between all of the scenes, and I also felt like this is a good one because I mean this category is essentially we could also call it like needle drop of the year. And there was literally a needle drop, right? <laughs> I mean, we saw the needle go on the vinyl here as the brother Mike starts playing uh, Tom Sawyer. And that actually, that needle drop for me is the part, like the montage, again, I think it's great editing. When you have the music really cranked, it, it, it's rousing, right? But at the same time, what makes this special is that beginning. And you know with a movie like this, a wrestling movie, at some point we're going to get a montage. There's going to be music. We're going to see wrestlers. We're going to see the debauchery of the road. We're going to see this whole experience, them, you know, flying high. Any director could probably make that work pretty well, and it would be fun to watch. But Durkin decides to do something a little bit more than that. He makes sure it starts with the brother Mike. And actually, we get a cut back to Mike at one point. It's very brief, right? But he's in the gym as the other brothers are on the road, but again, connecting those, those characters. Mike isn't part of the family business yet. He's not wrestling yet. He's a musician. And I love that touch of the scene beginning where he's sneaking the music on, waiting for mom to leave, <laughs> right? So now he and the, his brothers can listen to this. And the song here, I'll say about Tom Sawyer, for this time and place, it's this weird prog rock tune. And, and you get Mike cranking it up, Jeremy Allen's, Allen White's uh, carry responding to it, and, and then they hit the road. But the point is, is that even when it's just those three guys on the road together, it's as if Mike is still there with them in spirit because we get that intro here to this entire sequence. And, and then back to the song itself and, and the themes of the movie. I mean, obviously, Modern Day Warrior, we can hear that and go, okay, I get it. Um, always hopefully at discontent. He knows changes aren't permanent, but changes. We see the, the trials that this family goes through. But Neil Peart, who's the drummer for Rush and the lyricist, he, he said this about the song's meaning. He said, I added the themes of reconciling the boy and man in myself and the difference between what people are and what others perceive them to be. And I'm just not sure that you could better articulate the central struggle of this movie and these characters in conflict with, with their father, of course, and his expectations and the, the men they're, they're trying to become. I don't think you could describe it any better than that. Yeah, to go back to what you were saying about Mike, I, I think for me that is really the key to this scene. It's incredibly sweet because we have understood at this point, he is, as you said, the, the odd person out. Mm -hmm. He's the artistic one. He has different interests. Um, he's the youngest, right? He's the yeah. youngest, yeah. And um, this is how he's connecting with them because it's becoming their workout music. He's not, you know, at this point wrestling because um, that's not what he wants to do, but he can still participate. And, and yeah, that brotherhood that they formed, it's, it's because it. of little things like that. Yeah. Were you, Michael, now it's been such a blur. Did this come up on our roundtable, Iron Claw at all? I forget where no, you are no, on it. No, I did not write about it. There's a lot of films in that last you know couple of months of the year that, that um, and a lot of them very good that I just, I don't get to, you know, that I, I don't, you know, something about, 
It was a deluge this year, yeah, unlike any other, but, for but, sure. But it was also a wonderful indication of how damn good the year was in 2023. I mean, it really was. And, and you know, we're going to, I mean, that's, it's remarkable. And I have to say, since, we, since now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push this over now. We're going to be way behind after I've been. But I, I did want to say, how many years have I been on here? Like 15 or something? More than that. Uh, I yeah, truly, 16 or 17. Pre-Josh. Yeah, there and, was a time pre-Josh. Uh, yes, and now mid-Josh. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> but I really, honestly, I have I have just sort of in the in the most uh, gratifying way for me, I have I have just learned so much so much about just listening to you guys, just about how to talk thoughtfully and really beautifully about movies. And thank oh, you. Come on. All right. I. <laughs> I mean, he was he was already get, getting a fee for this appearance, and just making up for throwing flowers in my hair and messing everything. <laughs> He's making up for all the grief he usually gives us on the show. I also, I, I gotta have a shout out to my friend Eric Lindbaum, who I've known since college, but uh, who actually yanked the petals off those flowers for, for the for just a moment of cheap you, prop comedy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're here. Somehow, we're already at the final category. Mm-hmm. We are at scene of the year. Before we get to our picks, we get to Michael's pick, of course, we, we've got some audience choices to feature here. We're really grateful to Regal Cinemas for partnering with us. Great venue, great screen, great sound. Everyone has been so fantastic to work with. And they're giving us five three-month Regal Unlimited subscriptions to give away. Right. So promo time, Regal Unlimited is the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie, anytime, no blackout dates or restrictions. You'll also save on snacks, and members get 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. You can sign up now in the Regal app or at regmovies.com slash unlimited. If you do, just be sure to use our code, FilmSpot23. You get 10% off that three-month subscription. So I sent out an email. I said, we've got to give away these Regal Unlimited passes. Sam, as always, had the, the good idea to entreat our listeners, our, our participants here tonight to send us their scene of the year. And we would go ahead and feature five randomly chosen winners. And, and they're really getting the prize of, of the glory here tonight, but they're also getting that, that Regal Unlimited subscription. So we got five, Josh. Why don't you start us off? We're going to get scenes of the year from some of our audience members. All right, let's start. Our first winner, congratulations, Kate Kessler from South Pasadena. California. I met Kate beforehand. There she is. Congratulations, right. Kate. Here's Kate's pick. My scene of the year lives rent-free in my brain and at the top of my Spotify wrapped at the same time. I'm just Ken from Barbie. <laughs> it's not the dramatic peak of the film or even a scene that was totally necessary. And sure, maybe it's odd to pick the scene featuring men in a film about the experience of being a woman, but A few other scenes this year reached as high creatively, delivering belly laughs, my name's Ken and so am I, gorgeous visuals, the slow-mo beach battle, and pure star power, Gosling and Lou for future buddy comedy, please. In 10 years, when Barbie is inevitably reproduced as a Broadway musical, this will bring the house down every time. Yeah, great choice. Great, Kate. It's it's weird reading emails in front of the people who are here. We don't we don't have that experience. And you might say, well, you have a microphone. Give them the microphone. And Kate, I'm quite certain that you would nail it and you would be lovely and charming. But as great as all of you are, we've been to a lot of Q&A's 
right? And we're not, we're not giving the mic away. We're not giving the mic away. Sorry. We're going we're gonna to roll with it. So, or we could just have Kate come up and read all of the emails. I think we could probably do that here. And, and he's, he's going to be mad now. But Danny Cox is our winner number two. He all says, right. Danny, yes, up in front. I'm compelled to say the scene of the year. See, he's, he's doing a cheat here. I'm compelled to say the scene of the year is in mine and Josh's number one movie of 2023, The Boy and the Heron. When Maito witnesses the ascending Wara Wara, did I say that right, Josh? I think you got it. Okay. Yeah. And their subsequent attack by pelicans and rescue. But what is film spotting if not a safe haven for ties? That's why I would be lying to myself if I didn't bring up, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret? <laughs> the moment when Margaret asks her mother why she's never met her parents, it's an emotional wallop that completely catches you off guard in the movie. Rachel McAdams plays so many notes as she tries to explain something that she seemingly has accepted but is still hurt by, all while trying to answer what her daughter thought was a simple question. Like Mahito, see there's a connection. Margaret is seeing that life isn't always as simple as it should seem because the life is complicated and confusing. Good well choice. Well done. Yeah, Love it. Very good. All right, so five winners overall. Here's number three, Jessica Sladen. Congratulations, Jessica. Jessica, are you here? Way in the right. back. Way in the okay. back. Is, is, is Jessica one of the people watching our audio? Uh, no. Okay. No. Okay. So uh, we won't blame her later. <laughs> Jessica wrote, my favorite scene is easily the argument in Anatomy of a Fall. I consider that one too, Jessica. I audibly gasped in the theater at some of the things that were said. Great writing and performance from Sandra Huller, who perfectly portrayed how an argument can escalate from indifference to annoyance, to rage, all in that one scene. Yeah, definitely. Great stuff. Here's winner number four, Ryan Saylor. Ryan, are you out there? There he is, right there in the middle. So I almost thought we'd do a little massacre theater here, but I just did not want to destroy this scene. This bit is too good. Let's not. We're not doing it. And, and, you know, I had a thought too. Ryan could act it out with us. And and turns out we would have had time. Sorry, Ryan. You're not going to get that. Maybe maybe the next time we come to L.A. So the, the key line here is the end of this, this sequence. This is from Across the Spider-Verse as well. So everyone keeps telling me how my story is supposed to go. Nah, I'm going to do my own thing. I was not expecting my scene in the year to come from the animated Spider-Man movie, but there was nothing more piercing to me than this. In a year of great films, poor things, Anatomy of a Fall, it makes me happy that there is still room for a family film to hit me this hard. If you listen to everyone else, you already lost. Pave your way and find what the world has for you. That's what the scene says to me. And without writing a full essay, that could not be more relevant to my life. Thank you, Ryan. Good stuff. Thank you. Our final winner, Brandon Samora. Where are you, Brandon? Right in the middle. There you go. Congratulations. This is a good one. They're all good, but we, my, we haven't mentioned this movie. Yet. No, that we haven't. Yeah, and it's, it's a great film. My favorite scene of 2023 starts with the first notes of Akira Ifakube's See if I have that right. Iconic Godzilla theme when it roars back onto screen. In an instant, my childhood memories of kaiju battles, miniatures, and rubber suits were replaced with a sheer feeling of dread as Godzilla tears through Ginza. Mm. The devastation and destruction has never felt more personal. It's a single moment in a sea of moments where the enormity of Godzilla minus one overwhelmed me. Thank you for another great year of film discussion and discovery. Thank Thank you, you. Brandon. Yeah, thank you for that. And I'm glad we got in a mention of, you're right, a very good film, Godzilla Minus One. Congratulations to all of our winners. Thanks to everyone who submitted a scene. They're fantastic. I might actually steal some of their comments here coming up as we get to scene of the year. And we do want to thank, again, Regal for hosting this 2023 rap party. Round of applause for Regal Cinemas. Thank you. Okay, Michael, it's the big moment. Scene of 
the year. What do you have for us? The year. This was not easy because, uh, partly because this was a year of so many uh, practically perfect final sequences. And I, I, sometime around the fourth or fifth or eighth one, I just thought, this is, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm so used to not giving up on a film at the two thirds point, but, but you sort of know what is happening, you know, you know what you're going to get and you, you can guess how you're going to get it. And, uh, if you look at the, say the, I mean, the end of how, how Scorsese decided to end this, and Eric the screenwriter, how to, how to end Killers of the Flower Moon, that was a leap of faith. Uh, how, you know, everything from, um, you know, that, uh, Barbie had the, I mean, that was, that last line is just, <laughs> you know, waiting to happen. And, uh, and, and the timing was, you know, just perfect. Uh, I mean, the zone of interest, I'm still, I'm still kind of wrestling with that after seeing it twice and, and writing about it uh, just the other day for the, for the first time, really. And I think that, you know, the moment where not to, give it away but when one you know a the Auschwitz commandant peers down a dark hallway into a future that he will not live to see um is is again a startling risk rewarded you know we we are rewarded for it but i guess if you if i had to pick one it's also uh, got a unique kind of romantic suspense uh, which i i relish i guess is the final sequence in past lives so it sounds like, fortunately, most people here have seen Past Lives, and they've had time to see it. You should have seen it. Yeah. Because, yeah, we're, we're spoiling the ending of Past Lives. Yeah. Here it is. You're going to watch it again. Let's or go. watch it for the first it's time. It's too late. It's too late now. about it is that is that when I saw this film again uh, uh, about a month ago uh, it's it's honestly I'd rather spoil that final bit than the minute that comes before it because I'd sort of forgotten the details about exactly how long you know the other two-person combination is on the sidewalk exactly how close they get physically emotionally every way uh, what how that's resolved when he gets in the cab and it, the, the film has just, you know, got got a real, uh, a real uh, delicacy that that uh, right every instinct as a first time feature filmmaker uh, to just have the tact to, to keep the camera here instead of the usual two shots of close ups that will tell you exactly how to feel or how, and exactly how they're feeling in a moment where really life really wouldn't permit one feeling. <laughs> um, it's just amazing to me, and I think it's just. You know, it's a, a Celine Song's film is just a, a, a very simple, gorgeous little evocation of these invisible threads that connect us to the people we love across time and space. And you know, that's a that's a small thing, and it's the biggest thing we can take on as as, as storytellers. So, hmm. yeah, I love it. I'm glad you you mentioned. Yeah, it's a wonderful scene. I think it's right to use the word risk, though, because on Song's part is 
if you let that scene go on, the risk is you're going to lose your audience, right? And this is a movie for a particular kind of audience. I mean, I'm sure there's maybe a little more leeway, but still, this is a very patient scene. And it's that walk for Nora is going to take as long as Nora needs it to take Mm -hmm. um, till she's ready to meet her husband. And it's almost as if Nora, the character, is directing the scene. And and the camera is like, you do what you got to do. We'll be I'll be here for you. And I think that kind of gives it sort of the, the loveliness and, right. and, but that's a risk too. So. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Uh, here's some comments from, I said, I was going to steal a few uh, comments from audience members and maybe not a surprise, Michael, the scene's so great that it's the only one that several people wrote in with is their scene of the year. Going to feature a couple comments here. Colton Butcher, who I met beforehand here, uh, says he, he talks about those those preceding moments, actually, that, that we didn't see on screen here. It's the scene I keep returning to and the one I feel most affected by. The final scene is a perfect summation of the film we just watched. The mood is quiet, reflective and sublime. There's that word again. I also love the slow walk back home that ends with Nora's partner, played by an underrated John Magaro. Comforting her as she finally releases all the tension built in this scene. I rewatched the scene just to confirm, and even without the rest of the movie, well, my living room got quite a bit dusty. Colton, what about tonight? Did, did you tear up? Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, seeing it on the big screen, it, it hits hard. So, And then Josh is going to do the honors here with you know a, a guy that we go way back with here on the show, longtime listener Jason Eakin wrote some good stuff. Jason, let's hear what you had to say. Then that moment comes when the film jumps back to their first farewell as children. And well, isn't it funny how a simple match cut can just take your breath away. It's impossible to watch this movie and not reflect on one's own past relationships to try to look around the bend of what might have been. This whole movie has been about the tension between longing for some version of the past and loving what you have now. So as they waited, I wondered half in fear, half in hope that they might steal just one small moment, one kiss before he goes back home. And if they did, would it be a dream or a nightmare or a tragedy? The movie lets that question hang over so much of the film. And now here it sticks the landing in a way that is crushingly beautiful to me. This isn't unrequited love. For Nora, he is everything that was lost when her family moved to America. And so this time he leaves and she stays. And yet, because finally she's able to let her feelings out again, it feels like her entire world has changed. Well said and well written. It it. It's so, yeah, applause for Jason. And I, I think it's fitting that such a lovely film prompted such eloquent responses from our listeners and many critics as well who, who love this movie. So we're going to go to my scene of the year. We're mixing up the order here a little bit, and, and here's, here's why. I just didn't want to end this, this night that really has gone well so far, it seems. <laughs> right? I didn't want to end it on, on a heavy downer note because that's what's coming. With my choice, okay? With my runners-up and my winner, they, they fit with my overall theme for 2023. We talked about on that top 10 show, reckoning with the unreconcilable. So here, here's the downer part. I've got the unholy trinity, I'm calling it. Three scenes of fire and damnation. And that you just don't want to end a live show on, on that. But <laughs> part of this unholy trinity, I'm thinking of, Michael, you mentioned it earlier, but the trinity test in Oppenheimer. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, right? The fire scene in Killers of the Flower Moon. And, and here we can go back to great music moment as well. Blind Willie Johnson there on the score, this physical and spiritual agony that we, that we see in that bit of magical realism really that we get with the fire seeming like it's encroaching on the house that Lily Gladstone and Leo DiCaprio are in. And the, the final part of the 
the trinity here or the final part of this uh this trilogy of of great scenes michael you you talked about or mentioned jonathan glazer's the zone of interest it's a scene that came up on our top 10 show i teased that this might be my scene of the year sandra huler again from anatomy of a fall she's she's hedwig and her mother has come to visit this home this lovely home which is in the shadow of of auschwitz and up to this point, Glazer as a filmmaker has taken a very detached approach. There's no explicit commentary on the horrors of what's happening just over the wall. And this scene, we'll discuss it, but this scene is really the first departure from that. Her mother in bed, awakened by the, the light and the sound of the furnaces. I'm definitely not expecting any applause for that scene from the zone of interest, but it is, it is my scene of the year again, partly because of the way it fits so nicely in with what this year was largely about for me and those other, those other two great scenes. But, you know, I call it mother's mother's hell because that's, that's what it feels like. Right. Mm -hmm. Even after she closes the curtain, which, which is a key to the, to this scene and, and we'll get into that a little more too, but this, this idea of just trying, trying to avert your eyes, trying to avert your conscience and even when she closes that curtain, of course, that glow, it just gets even, even bigger. The, the clip not doing it justice here on the screen uh, that, I, that I pulled, but that, that filmmaking, the, the, the pure filmmaking of it, and you mentioned Across the Spider-Verse, is that being kind of your, your shot of the year? Well, that, that shot for me is, is partly why this is my scene of the year. It's that, that image of her looking out the window and the, the reflection of uh, the fire and then her trying to, to close the curtain, as I said. It, it's this moment, I, I think one of the things I wanna talk about with it is it's easy to see it or to kind of initially read it as maybe a moment of conscience uh, or conscious for the, for the mother because the next morning she's gone, right? She leaves, she doesn't even tell her daughter. She's just not there anymore. And you know, I was reading the plot description of this scene I wanted to see how Wikipedia described it. And they say, Hedwig's mother comes to stay, but is horrified at the sight of the camp and leaves in the night unannounced. And yeah, that's, that's I suppose, literally true, right? Finally, someone in this film faces the horror and is horrified, but I don't think that's really it or really what this scene is about for me. Think about when she arrives and you see the daughter giving her a tour of the grounds in the house. She comments, the mother comments on how... Uh, a woman she used to work for that she didn't really like is probably over there, is probably over the wall. Not only does she not care, she actually seems happy that, that she's there. And she couldn't be more proud of her daughter and this house and this life that, that they've built. And you see this image on screen, right? The room that they're in, this is that same room where she's having this terrible hellish night. Earlier in the day, when they're looking at the room, she comments on how lovely 
the room is. Of course, later, can't wait to get out of it. But in this moment, the, the room is really perfect. And in the light of day, as long as you, you can be oblivious about what's happening, it is. It is lovely. But at night, she can't. And that horror finally does engulf her. I think we can say, obviously, based on her decision and the way she's reacting, that, that she is horrified. And we don't know what happens to her after she does leave. But the point is, for me, that she leaves. It's yeah. that she, she yeah. just leaves. She chooses to leave, to ignore, to return to her state of obliviousness, like everyone else, like the rest of the country pretended to be oblivious to it. So it's, it's about that moment of her closing the curtain, but still not being able to escape it. Like she, she feels it, but I have no doubt that when she returns home, she just returns to her life as it is, yeah. unchanged. I, th I think the debate on this film has been the most stimulating film debate of the year. I mean, the, I mean to read Manola Dargis on it, who's you know, one of the very, I mean, probably the best critic in my view in the country, hate it, you know, just detested it because she found it facile, hollow, pointless. And, and it's not a, a sloppily constructed argument. It's, it's a very compelling case from her point of view and, and many others on, you know, that are near that. And many others are more like I experienced it and, and, and Adam and Josh did and, and others, I think I, I just find, but it, it's a great argument because it deals with aesthetics with uh, perspective, uh, with um, history, everything, uh, you know, and with, with the unfilmable, what used to be considered the unfilmable, this subject, which is not a course, you know, because uh, it's, it's been taken on from every angle in the world. And, you know, we've gotten an enormous hit out of it uh, to find when Spielberg found the one, I guess, legitimately comforting story you could tell. And this film does not have any interest in that. It is simply a, an, it's an unnerving uh, sus state of suspended uh, historical nightmare, and I, I just I, I find it you know that it's all there in that scene mm -hmm. with no with with all the right uh, organic design work and and emphasis uh, just so and with no no sense of where we've already seen movies t take this subject. So yeah, no, I love it. I mean, I love it. You know, when you're talking about her looking out the window, Adam, it's, it's, I, I agree with you. I think she probably does go back and, and hides and, you know, probably has a lot of sleepless nights like this one just in her own home. Um, but she is maybe the only one who does look out the window, right? I mean, the, the father does, it's his job, right? But he's looking differently and she actually looks. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's why this scene does stand apart so much. And this and flowers, uh, killers of the flower moon do make fascinating pair because they're it's like hellfire is reclamation mm -hmm. you know that this this is going to this is condemning these people and uh, it's going to follow them in some way yeah um, and, so yeah and you're right she she does look and she does react at least she reacts unlike other people in the house who are seeing and hearing the same things and for a much longer period of time but she doesn't choose to she she has she has mm, no choice mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. that moment the yeah. way it, in, it encroaches on yeah, her space yeah. it's it overpowering her space it overpowers yeah. that's that's it okay josh is going to close us out on on a much shinier happy note <laughs> we'll try everyone. we'll try um yeah so the trinity test in oppenheimer that was one i did think about absolutely um of, of the ones you mentioned adam uh, but i'm going to go with my choice for scene of the year I'm going to go with my preferred mid-century uh, depiction of a doomsday scenario, uh, and that is uh, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. 
the scene of the year for me, at least, is uh, the alien invasion. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, alien stole the asteroid. <laughs> I was just wondering, like, what does the alien think of all those people? Like, are the boxes, the alien think that's part of our bodies? He's probably as, as confused as uh, the people are. So this, this could be in some ways, um, you know, another Wes Anderson epiphany scene. Um, I feel like almost every one of his movies has one of these. You think of Max flying the kite in Rushmore or Steve encountering the Jaguar shark in, in Life Aquatic. But there's something different going on in Asteroid City um, than Anderson's other movies. And something that is, you know, it makes it the perfect movie for our moment. I really do feel like this, this chaotic now that we're living in. The alien isn't an epiphany that brings clarity. The alien brings confusion, right? We saw it on all those faces. Things were bad for these people already, most of them, the ones we've met. You know, there's family turmoil. There's threat of nuclear war going on in the background. Now they have aliens to deal with on top of all that. I could break down and would love to the filmmaking elements here that make this scene such a delight. There's the composition. There's the colors. There's the exquisite stop motion uh, animation design of the alien. But I'd rather talk about why I found this movie and um, and this scene in particular really exhilarating for, for this year. So 2023, we've all had a rough year, Dad. That's what it felt like. That's mm. what it felt like to me. Uh, maybe we've had personal losses like uh, Jason Schwartzman's Augie Steenbeck. Uh, what else do we see in the movie? We see, you know, inner inner despair, Scarlett Johansson. Just shiny happy. Midge Campbell. Shiny we'll get there. happy. We'll get there. We'll get there. Oh. We'll get there. Man. Um Allow me a little bit more, though. Maybe, maybe it's you know the the faint echoes of war um, that uh, are in the background. It's like those mushroom clouds in Asteroid City that are just poofing in the background. Um, you know, yeah. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> when Asteroid City came out, I I wrote about you know this the dicey times. This was this was the summer. This was before what's happening in Israel, in Israel and Gaza. Okay, so. Um, you know, to quote another movie from 2023, how do you live? That's the Japanese title for the boy in the heron. So how do we live amidst all of this? So the arrival of the alien in Asteroid City, it shatters the illusion for the characters in this movie that they are in control of any of this. They've been struggling, thinking that they might have some control over what's going on. You see the gun, the reach for the gun, um, right? That's, that's what, where they are at that point. But, um, the alien just explodes all that. We're not in control. We can't solve this. And from that humbling point, they're, they're very humbled in this scene. You know, then we can look beyond ourselves, look to find resilience, to find hope, um, and those sorts of things. I do think it's really interesting that the alien arrival happens midway through Asteroid City. Um, this isn't the big close encounters climax, right? Um, and I think that's revealing. The, the rest of this movie is going to trace how the characters respond to an encounter with the transcendent. 
And, you know, they, they kind of just go about their business mostly. I think it's kind of funny how there's like, yeah, there's an alien. You've talked about this, Adam, with mm-hmm. the other scene with the kids. Um, but they do start to change in little ways or their experience of the world starts to change. So the alien itself isn't the answer. The alien is an inflection point. The alien is the awakening that is necessary. So that's why I love this scene. But the green lighting, pretty cool, too. So. <laughs> yeah, I, watching it this time on the screen, I, I suppose we'd say the lack of intentional lack of sophistication of the effects and the, the flimsiness of the craft uh, coming down. I felt like I was watching Stonehenge and Spinal Tap, you know, this <laughs> tiny model coming right, down. It's right. supposed to be this grand moment, right? And, and it is for all the reasons you said, but it's also not yeah. in, in the way yeah. the filmmaking uh, renders that. But yeah, you're right. This is this is a film where all these characters have We've seen them from the very beginning. They're experiencing their own type of tumult. Mm-hmm. They're they're going through it, and they're they're questioning the way the world works. They're already starting to have um, this sense of order. Um, it's crumbling, yeah. right? Yeah, the yeah. loss of a of, of a wife, of a mother, of a daughter, and then the alien comes, <laughs> and you realize like everything is completely off limits. <laughs> like yeah. there's no more. There's no rails to anything. Yeah. Honestly, the only thing I changed with this is I would probably swap. I would I would put Ludwig Göransson's score from Oppenheimer on this, <laughs> and put that. Then you would have liked it. Then and put, and put it that more. blithe Alexander Desplat music on Oppenheimer. <laughs> just, and they both would have made uh, you know about. Five million domestic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are somehow precisely at time, everyone. That have you had a good time? It's great to hear. A few, a few thank yous before we go. Uh, again, I, I do want to thank Ryan Aguirre from Fox Searchlight. I want to thank uh, Daniel Freiberg and Zach Letterman at IFC Films, who were responsible for getting uh, Tran on hung here tonight. How great was was he? <laughs> Uh, I want to thank Joshua Brown at Regal Cinemas. This all started with a conversation with him. Everyone here at Regal LA Live who was part of this, uh, working with Brian Liu, working with Harry tonight, working Harry Hernandez, working with Fabiola Elias as well, and every, the crew in the, in the booth just doing a fantastic job. Yeah, round of applause for them. We mentioned Hung. We have our other special guest, Mia Lee Vicino. Thank you for coming. And of course, all the all the film spotting family members in attendance, and then I guess I'll call them core members of the film spotting family. Not only our producer, the incredible Sam Van Halgren here in front. All right, all right. Masterful job pressing a button tonight. We were we were we were perfectly in sync. It was it was lovely stuff. And how about the other film spotting family member, the great Michael Phillips? Everyone. That was the 2023 Rap Party live in L.A. Thanks to everyone who came out and helped make it such an incredible night. If we don't go back to L.A., and we've already decided that we're going to push an L.A. show to another season, where are we going to go? My basement? My basement's pretty big. I mean, we could, we could try that. Tickets would be quite costly, I imagine. Yeah. I say we just we limit it to, you know, within range of a dog sled. Let's try that. If you'd like to be among the first to know about future live events, consider joining the Film Spotting family. Also, get a discount, an exclusive pre-sale and discount for family members. More info at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to those event pre-sales plus monthly bonus shows and access to the full Film Spotting archive. As we said, Oscar nominations are just ahead and we'll have a reaction pod exclusively for family members next week. One last time. 
filmspottingfamily.com. That's our show, Josh. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you to choose your most anticipated film of 2024. Also on the website, show t-shirts and other merch. That's at Filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in limited release, one I'm very excited to catch up with finally, Origin. This is Ava DuVernay's adaptation of writer Isabel Wilkerson's award-winning nonfiction book, Cast, about racism in the United States, with Anjanu Ellis-Taylor as Wilkerson. And The Teacher's Lounge is also out. My number nine film of 2023. I can't wait for more people to see this movie so good. Remember, this is the one I reluctantly watched completely on my iPhone. It just worked out that way. It was so good, I couldn't put my phone down. And I think they should put that on the poster. Out wide, ISS. When a world war breaks out on Earth, America and Russia contact their astronauts and instruct them to take control of the International Space Station, hence the ISS. By any means necessary, Ariana DeBose and Chris Messina star in that. Next week, not only will we announce our golden brick winner for 2023, but we will look ahead to 2024 we'll share our movie preview and we're thinking we'll do it the way we usually do it we'll give you our top five questions about the movie year film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van Halgren. without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is veronica phillips and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org for Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.